0: If you're looking for great Christian content, we want to encourage you to check out peachtreepress.org. Peachtree Press LLC offers digital products, journals, books, Bible study guides, sermon outlines, Christian blogs, and church notebooks for children and adults. Some products are also available as print on demand. Peachtree Press is a sponsor of this program and a partner in offering authentic Christian content. For more information, check out peachtreepress.org. Welcome back, rappers, to our fifth season of the Ray Reynolds Rap Podcast. If you haven't already done it, please click that subscribe button. Follow us for authentic and encouraging Christian content. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and TikTok. Or check out our website at rayreynoldsrap.com. You'll find blogs, sermons, study guides, podcast links, and lots of free stuff. We hope that you enjoy today's broadcast. All right, so let's go to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Um, Starting tonight, uh, I I wanted to release this last Sunday, but I've been working with the elders on the themes and schedule for the coming year. That'll be posted in just a few minutes after class. But um, we have outlined all of the class topics and all the sermons for the year of 2024. I like to get ahead of the game. So the classes starting tonight on Wednesday night will be the Gospel of Luke. So we have John on Wednesday mornings, and then Luke on Wednesday nights, and we're doing that because in a couple months I'm going to start Acts on Sunday mornings, so uh, that'll, be, that'll be really good, uh, or I think Sunday night, Sunday night's book of Acts. So we, we will be going through the Gospel of Luke, starting chapter one uh, tonight, so uh, great opportunity since we're reading through the Old Testament, as you, we're not studying Old Testament books, we're going to study New Testament books, so... Uh, hopefully that'll be really good for you and uh, I know a lot of the themes each week Will be based on things that we want to do much more of in 24 So we're gonna talk about unity love and fellowship and we're gonna talk about um, work organization uh, In fact starting in two weeks We'll start having a men's class on Sunday nights and a ladies class on Sunday nights uh, we the plan right now is um Uh, on Sunday evening, instead of going back over to the auditorium, we will come in the fellowship hall, everybody. We'll have our devotional like normal, and then the ladies will be dismissed to either this classroom or the theater room, whatever can fit, and the men will stay in the fellowship hall, and we're going to talk about deacons and elders, we're going to talk about organization for ministry, we're going to talk about teachers, we're going to talk about jobs that need to be filled, and so Billy and I are going to alternate on Sunday nights teaching that, so we really hope people will come and really contribute because there's uh currently we have uh i think three deacons and we really have a lot of work that needs to be done so whether or not there's a title in front of somebody's name is not that important but we just got a lot of work we want to do so uh, all of that will um, start in two weeks i'm going to introduce it this coming sunday night so hopefully a lot of cool stuff going on a lot of great things but i love that we're studying through, through two gospels this year and um uh, look forward to, to Wednesday nights. But since we were not, uh, I wasn't here um, uh, last week, we had the office closed and we voted to, to not have class and um, kind of got rested up a little bit, and so we're ready to roll with John chapter 10. Uh, I want to just kind of read it through in sections like we normally do, and then we'll go through and we'll talk about a couple of things. Uh, specifically, I want to focus down to verse 15 to start, and then we will uh, we'll, we'll get into the details of it. Uh, One thing to remember is this is the sixth of the seven discourses, sermons. He's going to start in verse 12, uh, giving this sermon basically on uh, what it means to be a shepherd, a good shepherd. And so we'll get to that. Let's start reading, beginning at verse 1. Most surely I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and sheep follow him, they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this illustration. They didn't understand the things which he spoke to them. And Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever come before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved. And he will go in and out and find pasture. The the thief doesn't come except to steal and kill and destroy. I've come that they may have life, and they may have it more abundantly. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, who, who he, is, uh, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not uh, own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and doesn't care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep so uh, i know he's not done with this but this next section is a little complicated where he talks about the sheep that don't know his voice that would soon follow after so there's basically three uh statements he makes here three places three scenes Uh, it is morning noon and night and when he gets to talking about the night time the sheep basically have places where they need to be at some point they're in pasture At some point they're going in and out of the door and at some point they're at rest which is at night and uh, i know i've been here a little over five years now so i know that i i often use stories and illustrations you've heard before Uh, but i'm going to do this one again Uh, what a sheep would do at night is you were a good shepherd you didn't have to have them laying in the pasture land all evening if it wasn't a full moon you can imagine, with the dim light, being able to keep track of that many sheep. So usually what they would do at night is they would try to find a place to gather them up. Today, you know, you've got fences and chains and all kind of electric stuff that you can use. But they would basically go out in the pasture and get them some food, get them some water, and then they would herd them back together and try to lay down as a group. And if you were a good shepherd, you put them in a place of safety. So what they often would do is go to a cave or they would go to a, um, a little part of a mountain where there's, there's kind of like there's a defense where you can kind of set up a U-shape. I've drawn pictures of this before, but just kind of imagine that if um, there is a—I'm going to use this table. Imagine that if there's a cave opening, uh, the sheep would come in through the cave, and what the shepherd would do, if he was a good shepherd— is he would call them by name. you know, Here's little gray ear, you know, here's little black paw. you know. Call them by name, they know their names just like you would with your dog or your cat. And then what they would do is they would kind of spread their legs open like this and the sheep would come through them. And as they came through the shepherd, and he would gird himself and he would stand and he would look them over, check them on the back, the side, see if they have any scratches, uh, any cuts, any bruises. Uh, ticks fleas whatever they would search for because the sheep was valuable not only for food but also for their wool so as the sheep would come to them they would check if there was any issues with cuts and bruises he would anoint them with an oil that would be like kind of our you know mom taking and putting neosporin band-aid on us so they would he would check them over feel their ears and then they would go through him into the cave and rest and Then the next one would come they didn't just hurt them all up so he took his time at night Make sure they were all ready for the place uh, to be able to, to sleep. Now, the second part I'm not going to do. <laughs> what they would do is the shepherd, if he was a good shepherd, is he would lay down in front of that opening. So as he lays down in front of that opening, he has his staff and his rod, and he he is the door of the sheepfold. No one comes unless they go through me. So he would lay down across. And as a first line of defense, if a wolf comes in, they have to go through the shepherd to get there. So the sheep feel safe. They're all cozied up in their little, you know, as we do with Lily, with her little kennel. You know, you come in, you got, got your little area. More than likely, the, the cave had an ending. It wasn't like it was an open ended. Um, this is probably a place where they went regularly, maybe the same place they stayed every night in the seasons that they were in the field. And so the sheep come in, and then the next morning, the shepherd would get up and he'd take them to green pastures and still waters. That's what the shepherd does. So Jesus says, if you want to get to my sheep, you're going to have to go through me. Uh, He also says, in a very similar context later here in just a couple chapters, no one comes to the Father unless they go through me. So Jesus serves as this mediator, this go-between, this this door that the only way to gain access to the sheep or gain access to the father was through him. And of course, that's symbolic of what he accomplishes on the cross. He says, uh, if I am raised up, I will draw all men to me, which we already, we already looked at that section of passage. So he loved his sheep, he calls them my name. Um, every morning, every noon, every night, they had relationship with the sheep. They talked together, they played together. And and if you don't think that shepherds loved their sheep, go find the story that sent David reeling. Go back to 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. Nathan comes in and he goes, Hey, I got a story about this guy I need to tell you about. He's in our, I'm going to do it my my version because I don't remember every single exact word from it. But basically uh, Nathan says there's this guy uh, and he's a rich man. He's got tons of, tons of sheep he's got fields of sheep he's got they're running out of his ears but there's this one guy that's nearby him as a neighbor that has this little old sheep little baby ewe lamb little little tiny adorable little fuzzball and the little lamb eats at the table he sleeps with the kids at night he's a precious this is the most important critter that this family has And the rich man says, "I got some neighbors coming into town. Like to have something to eat? Go get that little ewe lamb and come slaughter it. Let's eat it." Now, first of all, he has plenty of sheep to be able to take and eat any of those. The other is, it's not. This would be like saying that you know I'm gonna I'm hungry and I'm gonna eat your puppy, right? Not not a big dog, not a dog that is of age, but I'm gonna take your dog. I'm gonna eat your puppy. This is not a Chinese food commercial by the way. I've heard a lot of times where cats get they test the food and the meat in the mean Chinese places. But, anyways, he he this this situation is it's the pet, it's the family sheep, and they have taken and slaughtered it. And David gets hot, you know. He's like, "Is this a true story? You tell me who that guy is. He's gonna die, you know. He's furious because he is a shepherd and he loves sheep." And Nathan goes with that bony finger, "You are." You're him. And David then is grieved, and he realizes he's talking about Bathsheba. So shepherds loved their sheep. They would do anything for their sheep. And so, um, so Jesus, Jesus shows how he is a better shepherd for the people. It's not ironic that it comes right after John 9 with the man born blind and him talking about the Pharisees being blind also. Um, And so this stereotype that the leaders of Israel were supposed to be great leaders uh, is false. They were all hirelings. They had no desire to give the sheep to the father. All they wanted to do was to preserve their religious rights. That's all they wanted. They had turned religion into a political mess, uh, which I would argue is the same thing that happened within about 300 years of the early church. As some men got together and started taking lead and said, let's introduce this and introduce that, the next thing you know, you have a corporation. Uh, it's not a church anymore. And that became a form of government, the Roman Catholic Church. To this day, it holds a significant amount of power and uh, information, which where there's information, there's power, uh, to keep from the average person. So Jesus is saying, once that point comes, you've got to go back to the shepherd of the sheep. And, uh, and he is the good shepherd. What else did you notice in Jesus' story? Any details or anything you wanna pull out of it? Questions you wanna ask? Thoughts about the shepherd? Comment. Uh-huh. Uh, shepherds stayed with their sheep 24-7. Yes. They loved those sheep, but the sheep loved the shepherd in return because he yep. was taking care of them and wood them off. Right. <coughs> Kind of the same with us and our shepherd. Yeah, absolutely. Should be. He's always near to us, and there's a relationship. Yeah. Right, right. yeah I think in the story too, it, it does point out that we need to be always on the guard because there are um, those out there that are trying to steal and kill our relationship with the shepherd. Yeah. Yeah, that's a constant threat. There's always somebody or a group of people that are trying to be, and may not necessarily know that they're trying to destroy the work of the Lord, but there are some that that is their intent, is selfishness. And I think it's interesting, too. He says, you'll find out who the real leaders are when there are people that run. You know, um, There's a scene in, uh, I think it's Jack Reacher with Tom Cruise, and there's five guys that go to jump him in the parking lot, and he's like, "Well, as soon as I take care of two of you or three of you, whatever, we're done." Well, how do you figure? There's five of us. He's like, "No, two always run." <laughs> and of course, he you know, beats the one guy up. Two of them run off. Um, so if you have somebody that is, when the heat of the battle, this is a good this is a good illustration too for our friends. If you're ever in a position where you're going through a fire, you're going through a major trial and there are friends that stop talking to you or don't know what to say, um, don't forget that. When you have people that stick by you and stand with you and fight with you and for you, that's where your real friends are. And and, and oftentimes in church work, there will be people who will start a fire and they run away from it. You know, they'll, they'll complain and complain and complain, and then as soon as they get a chance, they're going to hit the door. And Jesus says those are people that are, that are like... Wolves—they're—they're they're false, and they—they uh, they shouldn't be followed, shouldn't be acknowledged. So the main thing we think about—not only of Jesus and our relationship with Him, but also with our shepherds in church, our elders—that we have such a relationship that we know that they care for us, and we should care for them. Uh, yeah. You know, what I call those people that you just described two-faced, because especially you know Christians, if you will, right—they they, they put on perfection. Yep. Yep. in church but then once they step out the doors it's a totally different story right yeah absolutely <laughs> it's been my experience over the years that Christians have trouble tolerating Christians <laughs> you know it, they have great expectations mm-hmm. of their brothers and sisters in Christ <laughs> and if there's one infraction they can't tolerate it. Mm-hmm. and they never think about what they put up with yep. out in the world. yep but they you know I guess it's the great expectations that uh, lead us off. Mm-hmm. I think too. Uh, we have to be prepared for the wolves and we never know when they're going to arrive. We don't know when and Jesus talks about a thief in the night. And that we never know when that moment's going to come. You know, the, the the one time you become, uh, you know, lazy or apathetic or you're not prepared is when the wolf will attack. Satan Satan doesn't hit you when you're on your highest marks. You know, when everything's going great and all that, he waits for the moment that something bad happens. Then he goes, "Okay, now I'll pour it on." It's like all of our arsenal. It's just like in military. Whenever there is a front that needs to be made, they find the weakest link. They find the best uh, to preserve troops, to preserve weapons, to preserve time. They find the weak link. And usually the weakest link in times past, like for instance the Civil War is a great example, is they would circle the enemy as far out as they could and as soon as they saw a horse riding, they'd go get the horse rider. Why? He's carrying paperwork. He's got the paperwork of what they are, where they're at, what they're doing, and so a lot of times battles were uh, intercepted because they were able to get the, the the plans, if you will, the battlefront plans from a from one person. Now we kind of move into the section um, verse sixteen, where we talk about the need to shepherd the new flock and the those that hear his voice, and so let's focus on uh, beginning at verse sixteen. Uh, John ten, beginning at verse sixteen, uh, it says, and other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice. And they will there will be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore, my Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. And I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father." Therefore, there was a division again among the Jews because of these sayings, and many of them said, he has a demon and is mad. Why do you listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Now, it was the feast of the dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. Let me stop there for just a moment. We'll come back to 22 through 30 here in just a minute, but it talks about this new flock, And we can't overlook the fact that the Gentiles were a pagan people. Um, They needed to be held accountable for what they had done, but they also needed to make things right in order to be in the fold of God, in the flock of God. And the ancient Gentile world was religiously and morally guilty before the creator. I mean, that's taught both in Old and New Covenants. So Gentile uh, idolatry is described, in fact, there's several times where God directly says, Do not intermarry, do not fellowship with, do not entertain, do not so forth with those that are of those uh, idolic, uh, idolatrous nations, to stay away as far away as you can. And over and over again, I think about Genesis 20, uh, 32, De- Deuteronomy uh, chapter 5, and 6, there's a little section in Numbers 25 that talks about the. Gentile idolatry and how the prophets of God are speaking out against them. You can go read Hosea. You can read, uh, you know, just about any of the prophets, minor prophets, and you see the dangers of idolatry. And so the captivity of the southern kingdom of Judah is attributed directly to worship of false idols. We see that in 2 Kings 22, 17. That Gentile immorality and idolatry is exposed. It's rebuked. It's and, and even Amos is an example. You know, Amos 1 and 2, he denounces Damascus and Gaza and Tyre and Edom, so forth, for their brutality against their neighbors. I mean, the Ammonites ripped open pregnant women. I mean, vicious in their conquests. Terribly evil people sacrificing children. And there's an extensive amount of material presented in the Gospels of how the Jewish people felt concerning gentile people uh now we we can't we can't say they weren't warned i mean you go back to jeremiah 46 through 51 and and i mean he and other contemporaries said do not do not join in with these heathen nations but they did it anyway uh and and paul even in the book of romans uh in the first chapter recognizes that that pagan world that had quite an influence on uh jews and on christians And so the Gentiles are given this inward law. Paul talks about this inward law. It predates the law of Moses. Um, The ancient Gentiles weren't judged by the same rule as the Jews. Uh, Not not the same. In fact, Hebrews basically tells us that that the revelation of God from the law of Moses uh, is completed with the Old Testament Scriptures, but other nations, though they did not heed it, they didn't follow it, they were still under a general moral standard that was under... Both, um, you know, not just of covenant with God, but specifically among the 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 teachings and uh, practices and traditions they would have had since the flood. I mean, they even the Gentile nations should have known basic moral principles, and so it's called a law in their heart, a general law. Right, Romans 2, um, whatever you want to call it. But you can go back to Genesis 3, 4, 6. Prior to the flood, uh, people were calling on the name of God. They're they're spending time in prayer. We get to chapter 12 after the flood and 20. And um, while there was no written law, there is under that patriarchal law a moral uh, law of the heart. Something written in the heart, kind of like in the human psyche. It's almost by nature we have this natural sense of what is right and wrong. And that moral sense cannot minutely describe the difference between right and wrong, but it can initiate some broad or some strong inclinations as that it, there's something wrong about what I'm about to do or something right that I'm going about to do. Being kind to people, uh, being honest, having a little bit of integrity, those are all things that are written in the moral law of the heart. So when Adam and Eve eat from the fruit, Genesis 3, they had a guilty conscience. They didn't have to have God present them with all of the reasons why. He just said, if you eat this, you'll die. And and they had this guilty conscience before God, and that is what all humans should have. We're creating the image of God. We may not have God's physical features, but we do have some spiritual reasoning. Uh, I think the conscience is part of this human package. It demonstrates this moral chasm between men and women and, and other biological creatures on our planet. We are set apart as different because we have a conscience. We have um, a, a free will spirit. Uh, there's some evidence that God loved the Gentiles, because if you go back to the Old Testament stories and, and read in Hebrews, you'll see this. God had preserved a uh, the redemption of man through Jews, through the, the, the preserving of the seed, but it was for... The conversion of Gentiles. I mean, even the practice of offerings as atonement and all that foreshadowing of Jesus coming to the cross is to show that the human requirement to be right with God is for sacrifices to be made, or at least to acknowledge that there is a Creator and be willing to have a relationship with Him. Uh, Abel is an example. You know, he gave the first, fling, first slings of his co- uh, flock and the fat thereof, it says in uh, Genesis 4 4. Well, the offering had to be killed, uh, otherwise you couldn't present the fat. You couldn't present the best parts. And, and he's called righteous, and he offered that sacrifice, it says, by faith, Hebrews 11.4. And so the overall context of that chapter is this faith, this objective faith that's grounded in Revelation. It's not it's not just subjective. It's not just whimsical. They knew when Noah got on the ark and closed the doors that they had made a moral Mistake, because they did not choose to get on that ark and, it, and they died they, the flood waters rise, and when Noah gets off the ark what 's the first thing he do does He's, He goes out, he builds an altar he he offers some sacrifice to the clean animals and birds, and God is pleased with the offering in genesis um, so w- what compels him to do this? What compels him without a written law because there was on his heart a need to have some kind of a moral conscience and a knowledge of the creator. And even after that, you've got Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High God, Genesis 14, 18. That's before the old law, the old covenant. I mean, Abraham is still there. I mean, we're talking about 400 plus years till Moses would end up um, giving or handing over the, the law, the covenant, the old law, the law of Moses to the people of God. And so prophetically, uh, Melchizedek is like Christ. I mean, in fact, Jesus is t- said to have been of the order of Melchizedek. Well, how did he, without a written law, know the difference between right and wrong? How did he have a relationship with God because he was a person of morality, of conscience, and um, and God, of course, speaks to them directly rather than through uh, the word in those days. But the, the Hebrews are set apart. They're they're distinct. They're they're supposed to be. Uh, following the law to the letter, whereas the Gentiles are just simply supposed to be seeking out truth. And hopefully they would have sought out some of the Gen- the Jews. Um, I have a lesson one time I did called uh, the Great Commission of the Old Testament. And I gave passage after passage where God told them to go out and proselyte. He, he said, you need to go out you need to teach the strangers. You need to sh- spread my name over the whole earth. And and when we have stories like Jonah, where they're supposed to do that, he's really the first apostle of the Gentiles, um, he didn't want to do it. He, he does not want to have anything to do with that. Um, and so then we got other stories of, of individuals that are part of the genealogical fabric of the Messiah's uh, lifeline. You've got Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bath- Bathsheba, who are these these women who are um, you know kind of intertwined with the story of Jesus's coming. And many of those were uh, Gentile people, Gentile women, Gentile, half Jew, half Gentile children, if you want to just get down to it. So the prophets reveal again, and I, maybe we're going to do a whole study of this, that, that God does love the Gentiles, and he does want to save the Gentiles. He's, he's protected the Jews. He's given them special privileges and blessings, but ultimately he wanted the whole world to know him. So um, let's go back up to verse uh, 32, um, or 22. Now, as the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, it was winter, uh, and Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are Christ, tell us plainly. my father are one then the jews took up stones again to stone him jesus answered them many good works i have shown you from my father for which of those works do you do you stone me the jews answered him saying for a good work we do not stone you but for blasphemy and because you being a man make yourself god jesus answered them is it not written in your law i said you are gods if he called them gods to whom the word of god came and the scripture cannot be broken do you say of him whom the father sanctified and sent out into the world, you're blaspheming because I said, I'm the son of God. I do not know, uh, or pardon me. I do not do the works of my father. Do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the father is in me and I in him. Therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. So the son of God he is, Jesus is the Messiah, whether you like it or not, whether you accept it or not. And sadly, the people that were going to hear Jesus's voice were not the Jews. They were not not all holy Jews anyway. Many of the Jews uh, chose to stone Jesus at this moment. They are the ones screaming crucify when he's before Pilate. And so there's a lot of, really a lot of interesting background here to why the pharisees did not want to lose power and and they wanted to have that political upper hand which we'll get to uh in a few weeks we maybe we'll get to it in chapter 11 so so jesus is the son of god whether you like it or not he's the good shepherd whether or not you accept him and all of this it says happens around the festival of dedication now i mentioned previously in chapter 8 and chapter 9 this is the festival of lights it's it's the feast of lights it's hanukkah or chanukkah today and it's been celebrated since 164 BC, done by the Maccabees. So Jesus would have been raised up practicing Hanukkah, and I think it's good for us to study it. We we oftentimes during the holidays just kind of gloss over that holiday and, and don't recognize it, but it'd be good for you to see that it is a sign or a, uh, a symbol of one who wants to be uh, dedicated, purified, and... Um, you know, in, in good standing with God, and that's the reason why they did it. And the Jews kind of give you a little bit of background <clears throat> on Hanukkah. Let me read to you a little little excerpt. Um, this is uh, this is it says in the narrative of the first Maccabees. After Antiochus issued his decrees forbidding Jewish religious practice, a rural Jewish priest from Madden, uh Mattathias, the Hasmonian, sparked the revolt against the Seleucid Empire by refusing to worship the Greek gods. Mattathias killed a Hellenistic Jew who stepped forward to offer a sacrifice to an idol. In Mattathias's place, he and his five sons fled out to the wilderness of Judah. After Mattathias's death, about one year later, one sixty-six B.C., his son Judah Maccabee led an army of Jewish dissidents to victory over the Seleucid dynasty in guerrilla warfare, which at first was directed against Hellenized Jews, of whom there were many. The Maccabees destroyed the pagan altars in the villages, circumcised boys, and forced Jews into outlawry. Um, the term Maccabees as used to describe the Jewish army is taken from the Hebrew word for hammer. Uh, the revolt against involved, uh, itself, pardon me, involved many battles in which the Maccabean forces gained notoriety among the Seleucid army for their use of guerrilla tactics. And after the victory of the Maccabees during Jerusalem, um, there was triumph, and they religiously cleansed the temple, they reestablished traditional Jewish worship, and installed Jonathan Maccabee as the high priest. Uh, it also says there's a large Seleucid army that was sent to squash the revolt, but returned to Syria in the death of Antiochus the Fourth. Its commander, Elysius, preoccupied with internal Seleucid affairs, agreed to the political compromise that restored religious freedom. And so uh, that's a little bit of the background of it. Now, uh, they, of course... Uh, get held up. Uh, they are able to use eight candles when it was only enough for for just a day or for a few hours, and so the uh, the candles are still lit to this day during that same time period, and they remember this uh, this revolt of the Maccabees. So Jesus's miracles uh, and all these things he's doing are had a time where for the last hundred years, uh, one hundred fifty plus years. Uh, they had had these questions about who is going to be the Messiah to come in. If it wasn't the Maccabees, then who was it? And so Jesus does these miracles. He proves he's the son of God. And it really scares the Jews because they already were fearful of the Romans and uh, fearful that they would end up destroying the temple and destroying the Jews. So they are very careful. Uh, They uh, no doubt have the thoughts of... uh, Haman, uh, the Agagite, you know, from Esther's story on their mind, and they just want to make sure they, they are very politically correct when it comes to, when it comes to following uh, the Roman laws and the, 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 I guess would you say, the political correctness of the culture. But nevertheless, Jesus says, the Jews that he was speaking to, you, you've, re- you've rejected me. And so the people that are going to hear my voice are not going to be like you. They're going to be, you know, obviously Gentiles. Um, so let's leave these, read these last two verses, and then the lesson will be yours. It says, And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first, and there he stayed. Then many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true, and many believed in him there. So just like in the early parts of the Gospels where you have uh, Peter and Andrew and James and John and all these guys who had uh, either been followers, disciples of John the baptizer, or at least were connected to disciples of John. And and now, you know, John, he dies and the disciples are still out there in the wilderness, still preaching and teaching and so forth. And so Jesus is slowly drawing more and more of John's disciples to himself. So people were receptive. They were receptive to Jesus's teachings. They were receptive to his miracles. And this is what they're scared of. It's why they try multiple times, just as we read, To kill him, they do not want him, uh, you know, leading the people into some kind of a revolt. And so these letters, these, pardon me, these leaders become more and more aggressive. They are extremely antagonistic. They challenge Jesus every chance they get. And and there's probably reasons why John. I think these may be some of the reasons why John went out to the wilderness to teach and preach. He wouldn't have been accepted in town. That's Why Jesus says, you know, why did you go out there? What did you go to see? A, a reed shaking in the wind? You know, no you you went out there to see John, to see him, to hear him. And John had a different crowd of followers. Just to be quite honest, John is not a rabbi type. He was not lettered, if you will, like Jesus was. He didn't have the. Uh, persona, the dress, the look, Jesus looks more normal, I guess you could say. Uh, John is, you know, he's he's got a strange diet, and he wears strange clothes, and he's totally unlike the rabbi's style, character, uh, image, everything. He just he just does not care about his uh, outward appearance. He is careful on what he eats and drinks. I mean, from his birth, we know that from the earlier readings in, in the Gospel of Luke. But the crowds are different. Even soldiers are coming to hear John. And so Jesus and his disciples are going to go gather up what few are left out there in the wilderness. And it gives Jesus about three months before Passover, which is his last days, to kind of gather his thoughts and get his men ready for the events in Jerusalem. And I think that's one part of the story that's not told a lot. Like, what was Jesus doing? We know he did three and a half years of ministry before the cross, but what is he doing just weeks and months before, uh, the, the issue with Lazarus, which is going to be the next story? Well, they tried to kill him with Lazarus. You know, we're going to, we're going to get to that soon. So here he is out back out in the wilderness, kind of regathers, taking some time out there for maybe a little bit of retreat. We'd say getting his disciples on the same page before he leads them into the firing squad, basically, uh, in in Jerusalem. And for a week of excitement and also a week of sadness, as they realize Jesus is going to have to go to the cross, as he had told them for years would happen. So it's a great, a great section of scripture. Jesus, no doubt, is the good shepherd. He is the door of the sheepfold and this launches us into the next story which is in John 11 of the sheep hearing his voice and and Lazarus is going to be called out from the tomb which is really cool cuz God's always got his sheep you know they can hear his voice and 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 they know his voice and and Lazarus is going to come out of that grave which is really really neat so um appreciate you tuning in I look forward to getting with you into the next chapter very soon. Thank you so much for tuning into today's episode of the Ray Reynolds Rap Podcast. Be sure to like and follow and subscribe to our social media pages. You can find channels and links on our Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and TikTok pages. Check out our website at rayreynoldsrap.com. Also, if you'd like to contribute to the show, if you want to send some prayer requests or suggestions about upcoming content, please email us at rayreynoldsrap at gmail.com. Hope you have a wonderful day as you seek to maintain an authentic life in Christ Jesus.